Next week I'll be doing my tracks of 2017. And again, I'm not still that sure what I'm going to do. The albums are easy. This week, however, it's my best and worst films of 2017. A reasonable roundup in the end, I feel. Seen a couple, I normally restrict it due to. There's always this thing about all of the best films of the year come out awards season, so they come out in December and I haven't seen any of them. So then it comes to the year later and you're sort of, well, eight of the best films I saw came out in December last year. So I normally restrict it to films that I've reviewed on the show in this calendar year. Now, to get my movies of the year underway, it's broadly speaking a top 10. But I'm going to do the top 15 by in one go, the uh, the sort of also-rans that nearly made it. Well, I'd probably put at number 15 Thor Ragnarok, which I only saw a couple of weeks ago, but I thought was very, very enjoyable, very entertaining, and a uh, great direction, and also very funny. And uh, it, was a, it was an unexpected blast after some dismal superhero movies. Uh, and number 14, another one, but a much more cerebral fantasy sci-fi film. The last in the three, War for the Planet of the Apes, which didn't really put a foot wrong. I, was, I wasn't I was in love with the second one. I thought it was, um, a, a, well, it felt like a second movie, but it didn't, I think it felt a little bit small. It didn't really have a lot of involvement. This one was a, a lot sadder and more emotionally involving film. This was in a, a very post-apocalyptic world. Um, and I thought the, the performance of Anthony Serkis, again, he should be getting awards for this kind of stuff. He's been brilliant. Who is he at the moment? He's the um, the new sort of master guy in, in Return of the Jedi as well. He's got the CGI acting game on lockdown. No one can get a look in. And he's brilliant every time. He must be the only person in history to have two awards-worthy performances as an ape. Anyway, uh, that was at 14. And number 13, a film I never got to review, a very, very interesting one, well worth hunting down. It's not that old, called Good Time. It's, broadly speaking, a long journey into the night film. Robert Pattinson uh, takes his very, uh, I guess the old terminology was slow learner, but he seems to have quite a few different things mentally wrong with him. Takes him on a bank heist, cleverly, and when he goes wrong and he ends up uh, the... uh, Brother ends up in jail. Robert Patterson spends this sort of long journey into the night, coming across different characters and trying to use them to his advantage. It's ultimately a completely empty film, but it's stylistically stunning. One O Tricks Point Never, probably the soundtrack of the year for me. Really good to have up loud. The cinematography is great. And what happened to Robert Patterson? I saw the Twilight movie once, and him and Kristen Stewart, their acting was so bad. Last three films I've seen with Robert Patterson, and he's been fantastic. There was a Guy Pierce Aussie one. It wasn't called The Road? No, it wasn't The Road. That was a dystopian Cormac McCarthy one. Whatever, whatever that was. And, and Cosmopolis as well, I thought he was very good in. But this one's his best performance so far. Magnetic in it. Really, really good. And, and lots of uh, amazing scene on scene. Um, not real any point to it, but really worth watching. It's a great effort. At number 12, this is something that will come up at the end of the show. A Trip to Spain, the latest of the three that Rob Brydon and Steve Coogan, the British comics, have done, where they basically started off going around England, going to posh restaurants, doing impersonations, and it's uh, it's not quite dramality, but it's, it's um, 
fictionalized versions of themselves, lots of sort of ad lib scenes and impersonations and their rivalry, and also a foodie travel show as well. They've done Italy and now they've done Spain. I thought Spain was their best effort yet. Cinematography is always good. The director's Michael Winterbottom, who's a really acclaimed director. He's done all three films. I thought the... Um, here's the thing. Like It's going to come up massively at the end of the show. What is a film? And what is a TV show? So the Trip to Spain that was released in the cinema, same as the other two, I didn't care so much for. They edit down 180 minutes to about 110 and they can't let an impersonation go, so it's just too stuffed with all these moments where they're doing impersonations. The TV series is much better. It breathes a lot better. Um, but it is episodic. It is episodic like a TV show is. It ends, it begins, and it wraps up at the end of each episode. So I'm in two minds about whether including it. It is technically a film that was released in the cinema. But then again, the one that I like is is probably a TV show. Anyway, it doesn't matter. And number 11, another of... The, I mentioned last week, I think, there were two... There was either terrible superhero sci-fi films or really, really good ones. And earlier on in the year, uh, Hugh Jackman gave a wonderful final performance as Wolverine in Logan, which stepped apart from just about every uh, superhero film that we've seen. Very bleak, very adult. Um, and Patrick Stewart and him in it were really strong, and it was quite sad. It was a sad film, and there were some very strong moments. The story wasn't that good, but the relationship story between Patrick Stewart and, and Wolverine was excellent, and um, that was a really good. So that was my ones that nearly made it, and I'll come back with my number 10 film after this. Uh, number 10, the first a uh, more in-depth look is Lost City of Z. It's a film that came out earlier in this year and was well-received by critics, very well-received, and bombed completely. No one saw it. I thought it was excellent. I've always hated... It's basically a true story about a British explorer called Percy Fawcett who was exploring, looking for the Lost City of Gold or El Dorado up the Amazon River just before World War One. And he came back and uh, told the British scientific community that there was evidence in the jungle that there were these vast cities that go back hundreds of years. And that was very controversial because they painted the people that lived in the Amazon as savages, uh, tribes people, thatched roofs. So the idea that there were these more advanced civilizations was hugely controversial. And anyway, he ended up going back and forth, fighting World War One and getting seriously injured. And in the end, he went back when his young son, who he'd basically abandoned for many years, was an adult and wanted to do the journey one last time. And they were never seen again, uh, believed to have been murdered by tribespeople in the Amazon somewhere. Um, it started, this is a weird thing for me, I've always slagged off Charlie Hunnam as an actor because he's always been the worst thing in anything I've watched him in and I thought his acting was really clunky at the start of Sons of Anarchy as well. Um, and there's been plenty of films where I thought, you're the weakest link. So this time around he acts really well um, and I, I thought his performance was really soulful. He's not just this arrogant blunderbuss, he's, he's quite a soulful character and it's got some good backup. Sienna Miller is his, is his wife, and Robert Pattinson turns up as a, his explorer buddy again. It's really nicely shot. It's sumptuous entertainment. That, so I think I could describe it as sort of like 
it's in the realm of the Shawshank Redemption sort of thing. It's very sumptuous and satisfying, even though, you know, it might not win an Oscar for anything. It's, it is rewarding to watch. It's an interesting story. Even if it wasn't true, it would be an interesting story. But knowing that it was and that a lot of this stuff is public record um, and a lot of the scenery and everything, even the World War I sequences are very, very good. So it's a nice companion piece to one of my favourite films last year, the... Um, Embrace of the Serpent, the Amazon, another Amazon film, which was very art house compared to this and better. But this is a, it's a rewarding film to watch. So Lost City of Z is my number 10, my number nine film of the year for many. And in a lot of ways, the movie event of the year was Wonder Woman. Um, it totally turned the whole thing on its head with regards to... Um, I'm so sick of franchise superhero movies, franchise movies of any kind. Uh, and that's reached ahead with the uh, introduction of the DC movies. So we've got the Marvel movies, which have got progressively worse, Thor Apart, uh, which was a real blast. Um, and the DC ones had a rocky start with Batman versus Superman. And they've just released the uh, second one. And it's got even worse reviews, I think, than Batman versus Superman, or at least as bad. And they're really leaden and dull, and Zack Snyder's ruined pretty much every film the same way. Heavy, dark, morose, characters driven by, you know, their own personal quibbles. And suddenly Wonder Woman came out, a massive risk. Patty Jenkins, a female director, and a woman that has almost gave up making movies. So wasn't a particularly good actress, but God, is she beautiful to look at. Gal Gadot. And it was a big risk because this was a female superhero movie, the biggest female superhero movie there's ever been. It was a lot of risk to release it. As we've seen with the uh, bad superhero movies, they still seem to make a lot of money. Anyway, this came out to absolutely stellar reviews across the board and great box office as well, did about 800 million. It was an amazing breath of fresh air. And the things I liked about it the most was it was feminine. It was a woman film in the sense that, you know, Batman versus Superman. Batman and Superman, they're not nice people. <laughs> they're just self-obsessed and they're torn apart by their demons and they're acting out of arrogance and, you know, they're very combative and they want to take on the world and they hate things and everything's at night and... This was just so fresh. It was beautiful blue daylight, sunlight. The characters were radiant. And above all, Wonder Woman didn't act on the same motivations as these other characters. She acted on humanity. It was an incredibly humane film. She wanted to save the world because she cared about people. She wanted to stop all of the suffering that was happening. It's set in uh, World War II. Uh, and the Amazonians, of which Wonder Woman is one, are on this sort of mythical island that's sort of semi-shrouded in magic. And Chris Pine, uh, an actor who's got better and better um, from being a pretty boy, goofy actor at the start to being a very, you know, soulful and gravity-laden actor now. Um, he comes out of nowhere in a plane and crashes in the sea and uh, he's being chased by Nazis and um, basically Wonder Woman follows him off the island and becomes part of the world and another great element to it, it doesn't rely on her superhuman abilities very much 
It doesn't even come up until late on in the movie so much. I mean, a little bit here and there, but not very much. It doesn't rely on those things. And the cast was hugely engaging. Uh, Chris Pine and Gal Gadot made a, a great central pairing. David Swellis, a brilliant British actor, gets to be the baddie or one of the baddies. And also um, a guy from Trainspotting, who I keep forgetting his name as well. He's good to see him. It was a good ensemble cast. Uh, beautiful cinematography. When the effects happened, they weren't overused. And it was nice to have a, a, a movie where the main protagonist's motivation is, is a human one. You didn't really care that she was this, this alien god, you know, apparently the, the child of two gods or, or whatever her origin story was, because she just cared in very relatable ways. It's like some, the most memorable part of the movie when she finally reveals herself going over the trenches, when she's just walking along stunned by these faces of these children and women just shuffling amongst the mortar shells going off in absolute horror and pain. And it's an affecting film, and it was beautifully put together. Patty Jenkins couldn't have done any better with the direction. It was perfectly helmed. It was, wasn't slow. It was bright. It was airy. And you enjoyed being with these people. Like, Batman vs. Superman is so, just like crawling through slime. It's so sludgy and grimy. And, and this was just a, a complete breath of fresh air. And I thought Gal Gadot was wonderful in the lead role. I thought she was just perfectly cast. Not just looks-wise, but there was a, a convincing simplicity to the way that she viewed the world, and I, I really did like it. A lot of people would say it was the film of the year, but it's my number nine. My number eight best film of 2017 is the sequel. It's uh, a film, the original, I loved. Uh, John Wick, Keanu Reeves, thankfully, everyone loves Keanu, and it's always good that he manages to pop up with something successful every now and again, rather than just fading away. And he probably took a little bit of a chance on the original film, which was a total genre piece, neo-noir sort of uh, hitman film, that would apparently appeal to a very minimal audience. But it was a massive success, and they didn't shy away from trying to do the genre cliches very, very well. Great car, excellent fight scenes and, and violence, great cinematography. And I was particularly happy... That uh, they sort of focused on the more sort of Japanese Hong Kong style of things, where it's all a bit more cerebral and moody, and the lead character is very mute. Uh, and Keanu is perfect in these kind of roles. He's gotten better as an actor as he's gone along, but he's always been good in this kind of role. Uh, and John Wick Two was every bit as good as the first, though in different ways slightly. Um, it's, the story is kind of irrelevant. It follows literally on from the first film. Uh, and he's dragged back into the underworld. He's a, a retired hitman. They killed his dog in the first film and he went on a rampage um, against his, the Russian mafia in, in America um, after they killed his dog and, and smashed his beloved car up. Um, this time around it's a bit more uh, global in scope. Uh, the, one of the best things about it is the mythology it creates this uh, world of hitmen where there are hitmen, a bit too many hitmen, everywhere you look. Uh, and they work through these series of hotels called the Continental where you can go and anyone can stay and you pay with coins, gold coins, that you get payment for doing jobs in. And they're, they're kind of like the, um, the clearinghouse for all of the hits and they sort of send out messages for hitmen saying, you know, this person's got to go and this is how much we're going to pay him. 
blah 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 and any no violence can happen on the grounds of these continental hotels or in every major city in the world and the new york one is uh, run by ian mcshane who's fantastic and i just heard that they're definitely doing deadwood the movie to, to if you didn't watch it they sort of stopped um uh, on season three of deadwood and, and left the whole thing hanging uh, and apparently they might be doing another one, but Shane is brilliant in this, and so is uh, Keanu. He's very, very good. The only things that I let would let me down in this film was the first one had more heart. He seemed to be driven like his um, his uh, wife had died from illness, and and he seemed very driven by personal things: the death of his dog, the death of his wife. Whereas this time around, he didn't seem like he really cared about any of those things, and he was the worst dog owner on the planet as well. He didn't seem to care much about his dog this time around. But the cinematography, the fighting, everything was great. Most of the side characters were great. The other thing that's wound me up a bit is there's too much killing. Because it kind of, you know, the, he has a fight in it with the rapper Common, who's excellent, which goes on throughout the movie virtually. They're rivals throughout the movie. That's so much more effective than him beating up and killing 20 no marks that you don't even get to know in a row. So I hope for the third one, which is already in production, they do wind it back. Um, and they're not so focused on like a hundred deaths in a row it, it happened in the matrix as well when they got into the second and third films where there'd be these fights where there's hundreds and hundreds of people getting whacked and it just says law of diminishing returns so i hope there's a bit more heart next time and a bit less i mean the there's a scene in it where john wick is walking down the street and uh, the hitman get noticed to kill him everyone in the whole street is a hitman and just like you know well Anyway, John Wick 2, another great genre piece, even more successful than the first one. Lawrence Fishburne's in it. The only, the other, th- probably three things that were annoying. Everyone's great in it, apart from the two villains. The two main villains being um, Ruby Rose is, is like a, a mute hit woman in it. And she works for Ricardo Scaramaccio. And they're the two weakest actors in it and the two weakest characters in it. Happily, they're not sort of dominant in a way that a main enemy would be in a film, but they, they're not the high point of the film. There's some beautiful stylized sequences as well. It's really stunning to look at. Um, so another great genre piece, Jean Wick 2, my eighth best film of the year. Uh, my number seven film of the year is one that bleeds over. There aren't too many that bleed over from 2016, but um, this did come out in 2016 i didn't see it until january i didn't review it until january and what a film it was paul verhoeven is a fascinating director he's done some really bad films like showgirls but often when he's done bad films they've actually stood out as well i mean that's in a way it's a cult classic it's um, a camp cult classic now uh, and he's also done films like Basic Instinct and many others. To- the, the most famous ones were like Total Recall and uh, Robocop, sort of like these dystopian future ones. And he sort of pe- peddled back to Europe and made European films for a while. And he came back with L, a hugely challenging and provocative film starring an absolutely phenomenal Isabel Huppert, um, who played this highly sexual and not very nice executive character who was very um very difficult um and very wonderful as a as a as a character fascinating not the nicest person (laughs) very reckless at times and basically she's attacked and raped in her in her apartment and she comes to believe that the rapist is actually 
someone that lives opposite her and embarks on this sadomasochistic relationship with him. It was hugely provocative, very controversial in the way that it portrayed rape, the way that it portrayed her response to rape as well. She just basically gets on with it. Um, and there's a lot that's very challenging and a lot that made people very angry. But I just found her character so unique and so well-formed. The idea that we live in a world where Emma Stone is voted a better actress for her role in La La Land, which was sitcom-worthy over Isabel Hupper in this film, which is a masterpiece of acting. And I love the way that she's in her 60s, but she was played a very sexualized character. Uh, and she was very in control. And uh, just a hugely entertaining film, not always in good ways, not always in fun ways, but a surprising film that went off on tangents that were unexpected, very provocative. And I thought it was brilliant. So Elle, uh, which had mainly European cast in it, um, obviously a big-name director, Verhoeven, loved to see him making more films in this vein. Even though he went for the sort of traditional European fare the kind of film that you see made in Europe quite often. He injected it with the same sort of provo provocation that he managed to put in films like Basic Instinct and Robocop and Total Recall, just in a completely different setting, this time a, a much more suburban setting, urbane setting with sort of, you know, these executive types running businesses and so on. And the um, I, I loved the whole setup of it, her in her flat as well, the way that it was all sort of um, the world was created around this character and the other characters that sort of wove in and out of her life, including her very, very scary neighbour and the denouement as well. After that happens, uh, the conversation that Isabel Huppert's character has with the would-be rapist's wife is chilling. And I love that. I love the fact that it was so, so often went off in a slightly different way than you expected it. Um, a really good film, but one that you need. Not the most challenging film on the list. That one I saw recently and is coming up. But it is a challenging film. And, and obviously depictions of rape are really a, a danger area for any director to go through. But they can be done really well. The two that stick out in my head is a very controversial film called I Spit on Your Grave. And also um, Straw Dogs, a Sam Peckinpah film with Dustin Hoffman, which had a, an, another rape scene that was shown in a really different way to the way that they normally would deal with this kind of thing. And again, this time around, the, the way that she tries to engage her rapist in, in this sort of masochistic relationship is, is challenging, but it's brilliant. Elle is my seventh best film of the year. Did come out at Christmas, but there you go. I saw it this year. Um, my number six film of 2017 was the Christopher Nolan gamble Dunkirk uh, obviously a labor of love for him and um, he's sort of meandered a little bit the British director he, he deserves to be up there with the very best like Paul Thomas Anderson and he has reached it at times but I think saddling himself with three genre films in a row the Batman movies didn't give him the artistic performance uh, that he could do uh, in its more sort of um, or uh, auteur films where he was um, completely you know he, he didn't have to pay homage to a universe that was already existing and we saw that with Inception and to a lesser extent Interstellar which I thought was a bit of a failure this time around he's a different director everything that I kind of have problems with him before which is that he overstuffs films he makes them too long he gives you know the, the last act has about five acts in it 
I thought that The Dark Knight was brilliant, but it had too many acts at the end. It was just like, this is an ending, this is an ending, this is an ending. And I felt the same with Inception. You know, the, the battle sequences are nowhere near as interesting as all the cerebral stuff. This was a totally different director. It's a very still film. It's a very cerebral film. It, it weaves three different stories about the evacuation of Dunkirk, which is arguably the most important moment in World War II because if the British soldiers hadn't gone back to, Europe, uh, to the UK, 300, I think, out of 400,000 soldiers were sort of trapped at Dunkirk by the advancing Nazi uh, Germany army, then it's a possibility that the war would have ended uh, right there and then. And this is before America got involved. Um, and this flotilla of uh, boats, about two, 3,000 boats, came over from England, small boats, privately owned boats, to help with the evacuation of these soldiers, which went unbelievably well. Lots of strange elements in this. Why didn't they attack more? The weather, which um, made it very difficult for the U-boats to shoot these people down. And maybe the fact that there are a lot of them were in these tiny small boats made them uh, difficult to hit. Um, and the fact that the, there was minimal involvement with air support as well. It was an amazing story, and he did it full justice. I thought the, um, the, the, there's three elements. There's the soldiers leaving Dunkirk. There's the flotilla going over from the UK, which is shown as, broadly speaking, one boat. And there's um, the lone Spitfire support they have, which is about three planes. And that's, I, I found that really interesting because Tom Hardy, I thought, gave a very soulful performance when he's wearing a mask the whole time and he's in silence for almost the entire performance. Cinematography is equal to anything this year. It's stunning. He made it on the 70mm print, which is double the normal size, uh, and it looks breathtaking. And it's also a, moment, uh, a film of moments. Um, it's not that the story is there because it's more of a sort of reportage or collage of of events that happen rather than a narrative or um, a screenplay with you know plot points and stuff like that. It's more of a reportage of the weaving together of these uh, different storylines. Um, but he does, uh, it, it, like, there are moments that just stick with you. Some of them are haunting, some of them are shocking. It's not a violent film and there's not much war in it in, in a way. But I found it very interesting, beautifully made. I thought the screenplay was very, very good. Considering the disparate elements and the fact that there wasn't a really strong grounded story or character development or so on to put it with, um, the areas where I thought it fell down was mainly the people. And that was a little bit like the, the, the human aspect was the least satisfying. A lot of the grander stuff was really satisfying and the action and stuff like that, all very satisfying. The human elements were seemed like the least written. Uh, some of the performances were great, though. Cillian Murphy was great. Mark Rylance was great. Uh, and also uh, Tom Hardy was excellent. But outside of that, I found the weakest part was the, the soldiers leaving Dunkirk and, and going through that whole process. It's very interesting the way they don't really show any Germans. Like at the start, there's soldiers in Dunkirk fleeing the Germans as they're shooting them, but you never really see them. And it remains that way broadly for the whole film. I think the only Germans I remember you really seeing are the um, pilots fighting in the, uh, the Spitfires. Other than that, it's, it's almost like this invisible journey. And I, th I thought that the young soldiers, led by Jack Loudon and Harry Styles, on the Dunkirk side were the weakest. I thought their acting was a little bit hammy, Harry Styles included. He got good, good notices for this, didn't think so. 
but it has got many memories for the you know visual memories it creates in your mind and it was pretty unique and um it was an unusual war film and i did enjoy it and i i did enjoy i thought this it, it wasn't wafty i thought the screenplay was pretty tight actually um but this is this was a film that you sort of fed on with your eyes and it was beautiful absolutely stunning and so i thought tom hardy made a good heart and soul to the movie as well so that was my number six film of the year after this i am going to round up my five worst films of 2017 my worst films i'm rounding up my best and worst films of 2017 as well as playing older music from the show throughout the year that i've really liked um, but now I'm going to do my worst films of the year. Special mentions to Logan Lucky, a film I've recently seen, one of three films I watched over this weekend. One was Good Time, which came in, I think, at number 13 on my list. And the other one is going to come after this. Um, but uh, the other one was Logan Lucky, which is one of the most acclaimed films of the year. But I thought it's, it's basically the White Trash Ocean's Eleven um, and it's the same director, Steven Soderbergh, who's a brilliant director. It's a great cast, all playing against type. Cinematography, great. Soundtrack, awesome. Everything's in place for a really good film, and they just, it's so superficial, and it's, they don't, don't try very hard to make it interesting. The story itself, and the, when you've got a heist film, the heist has to be the, the payoff. And I found it messy. I found that like there's two main elements, the jailbreak and the heist, I found them both quite confusing and I felt like it was way more superficial than Ocean's Eleven. So that was a letdown. But anyway, my five worst films of the year at number five, one of two Oscar Hoovers last year that I didn't like at all. Moonlight, which I, I thought was all right, but pretty boring. Uh, at La La Land, I didn't like at all. Um, it won lots of Oscars and briefly Best Picture <laughs> in those amazing scenes. Um, I just didn't like it, and on any level either. I didn't think the acting was good. I thought Ryan Gosling, nothing from him. Given how good an actor he is, nothing at all. Emma Stone, how did she get an Oscar for that? And there's no one else, there's no side characters in it that are of any note. And I thought uniquely it was both the one. It was a bad film and a bad musical, which is remarkable. I thought the the Oscar-winning score was poor. And I thought the other music they used in it was lame. So number five, La La Land. And the story was so trite. You know, budding actress, budding jazz musician, try and make it in Hollywood. Number four, another of the most acclaimed films of the year. When I say my worst five films of the year, some of these aren't terrible, terrible films in the normal sense. But they might be films where they've got acclaim I just don't feel was justified. Baby Driver falls into that. Edgar Wright who's uh, made Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, which were great, but also films like The End of the World and I can't remember the other one starring Michael Cera, Scott Pilgrim. I thought they were terrible. And I think this continues his run. It got lauded as some wildly fresh gangster trope film, came across as very subpar Guy Ritchie and Guy Ritchie's subpar anyway. So I thought that was pretty rubbish. I didn't even like it. I thought the lead character, Ansel Elgott, was it? I thought he was really rubbish as a, a lead character. The only one was any good was Jamie Foxx and maybe Kevin Spacey. But so, the writing was so poor that nothing really came out of it. And the soundtrack was average and they, it got lauded. Number three, a film I gave zero to, Kong Skull Island. It just showed no imagination on any level. The only reason it's not number one is it was competently made. 
It just aimed at nothing. It's like I think I said at the time, if you're going to say I'm, my ambition for today is to remain in exactly the same position I'm in now on the couch, well, you can do it, but uh, is that impressive? And given the brilliance of the uh, King Kong screenplay that Peter Jackson wisely used, this didn't. This was just the most A to B film of the year. Nothing happened. The monsters were useless. The performances were crap. And I just, it was very, very boring. At number two, we move into far messier territory now. Uh, if Kong Skull Island was uh, very competently made, The Mummy was not. It was a disaster. It was okay for about half an hour or so, but then it got into a very, very messy screenplay, which didn't make any sense, and I found myself staring at the wall a lot. And it also hamstrung itself by making Tom Cruise's character this kind of invincible character, like he was supernaturally invincible. So it just removed any tension from the movie because you knew he couldn't die. And the story was the old story, you know. 2,000 years ago, there's this person trying to become a god he's thwarted 2000 years later he comes back and tries to you know perform these ceremonies that will make him all powerful seen it a hundred times but it was a very messy film really really messy not without merit in individual moments but just a mess the second half of it was abysmal absolutely abysmal my number one worst film of the year mr guy Ritchie himself probably my most hated successful director as someone else said, the most successful mediocre director in movie history. He's always been bad. I didn't even like Lockstock and that, but they were watchable. Since then, everything I think I've hated, apart from one film I liked of his, what was it? I can't even remember now. He did King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, starring, funnily enough, Charles Hunnam again. Um, he wasn't the worst thing about this film. Everything else was. Um, he did a very bad job of making a historical, traditional King Arthur film, and that was half the film. And then he brought himself to the table, which was to turn the King Arthur fable into a Lockstock film. And they were even talking like people from Lockstock. I found a lot of the choices very strange. It looked like it was shot in Portugal or Spain. The characters were from all over the world. And it's supposed to be like this very English story about King Arthur, but I was never convinced I ever set foot in England. It was an unbelievable mess. I mean, the narrative in The Mummy I could follow, the narrative here I just didn't bother following. None of it made any sense. It was overladen with histronic special effects and it veered uncomfortably between this sort of lock-style jokey knockabout banter and the more sort of um, technicolour cerebral monsters and um, wizards and, and, and that side of the whole fable. So that was a truly, truly terrible film and my worst of the year. And I don't think Hollywood will be spending $200 million on a Guy Ritchie film anytime soon. Uh, you're with Julian counting down my favourite films of the year. After the worst films of the year, uh, we move into the top five best and one I saw very recently and never reviewed on the show. And it's certainly the most provocative film of the year, Mother, by Darren Aronofsky, one of the great directors currently operating in America and one of the most, uh, probably the most left field if you talk about people like Christopher Nolan, David Fincher and uh, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, probably just to the left of all of those. Uh, his last film was The Big Budget Noah, which certainly had a lot to recommend and a lot to not recommend. This time again, he follows some biblical scenes. Um, he's made a, a haunted house film essentially it's a 
Jennifer Lawrence is in this uh, beautiful big old mansion and she's married to Javier Bardem and apparently everything is is idyllic and um, into this world it's crashed by he's a he's a famous writer and into their lives come fans of his uh, very weird ones that have made the um, trek to come and see him played by Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer and they basically overstay their welcome a number of bad things happen and the whole time Jennifer Lawrence is looking to her husband for support and guidance but he seems all the time no matter who arrives to be on the arrival side with everything and it's this creeping dread for Jennifer Lawrence um, it really recalled a lot of films particularly Rosemary's Baby and Repulsion to Roman Polanski films um, it has that a woman going mad in a in a house scenario of repulsion and also this sort of like clandestine people arriving while she's pregnant as well like rosemary's baby um, but there are also elements of other films like society and kill list and uh, wicker man as well where there's this sort of central character the lead protagonist that you're with and neither of you really knows as much as everyone else about what's going on and Jennifer Lawrence should get an Oscar nomination for this. It's really great to see her in a role that isn't franchise. I loved her in Winter's Bone, her first film of any note, and said she should have got a Best Actress Oscar for that. And she's made great films like Silver Linings Playbook and American Hustle. Too often, though, she's been in Hunger Games, she's been in the X-Men movies, to, I don't know, diminishing returns for me and wasting her talent. She's brilliant in this, a very different character, a very sort of, a very sort of shy easily manipulated character that is put into this untenable situation where people just keep arriving at her house and she doesn't really understand what's going on and she's in like her face is virtually in every shot and she's never allowed to leave the house she's it's very claustrophobic and that's the two-thirds of the movie are these sort of this spiraling arrival of people into her world uh, and, and then it sort of moves on to the second act where she's actually pregnant and um, the final act the whole sort of haunted house thing goes out the window and it becomes, it reminds me, it reminds me of the end of Kill List, which is a very abrasive film, especially the ending, and also uh, Day of the Locust as well. It moves into this almost apocalyptic nightmare and it is an apocalyptic nightmare. As far as mainstream films go, this isn't one and it's probably as left field as you can get released. It cost $40 million, it did make a profit. But this is an art house film, and it is a film that a lot of people would be very upset to watch. What happens in the last third is excruciatingly strong, like more than you're used to seeing in a Hollywood film. The cast are universally superb. Michelle Pfeiffer is excellent. Uh, Javier Bardem acts much more than I've seen him in recent films. Ed Harris is fantastic. Uh, and after that, it's sort of like this gradual increase in the number of people in the movie jennifer lawrence is fantastic and the house is so beautifully shot there are two stars jennifer lawrence and darren aronofsky he does cultivate this amazing atmosphere he shoots it so well he weaves together the sound the visuals everything in the whole thing it's got a lot of scares in it and a lot of people complained that it was marketed as a horror film when it shouldn't have been it is a horror film it's just not a horror film in the sense of, you know, if you go expecting paranormal activity, you might end up in therapy. Uh, it is that strong in the last third. Some scenes that a lot of people would find very difficult to digest. 
Uh, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was incredible. I love the themes. There are like themes about whole creation of Earth. Uh, it, it doesn't mention anything to do with religion, but you can tell that there are sort of like Adam and Eve parables, Cain and Abel parables, the fall of mankind parables, and all of this kind of thing, which really work for me. And there's also this other side, which is um, almost about the artistic process, where there's you know an artist who is, is suffering from writer's block, as Bardem's character is, and Jennifer Lawrence is his muse, basically. So he's sort of like creating her as the movie goes along. So I thought it was a brilliant film, a unique film, a very challenging film. Uh, you have to be able to stomach some pretty strong stuff. And I'm not just talking about uh, a representation of violence. I'm talking about some pretty extreme things that happen as part of the narrative, which are supposed to be metaphorical, but are still very, very full on. So that would I would have given that uh, probably a 9 out of 10. I thought it was a brilliant film. The direction is magnificent. He's got such control over his medium. You're just constantly swirling around this mansion with Jennifer Lawrence. Every little thing, every little noise and look and the way that it's shot and from what distance is perfectly rendered. So Mother is my fifth best film of the year. And I didn't review it in the year because I only saw it this weekend, but it's incredible. If you want to really challenge yourself, go for it. Now, my number four film of the year is a throwback. Uh, and as I mentioned, there's a, there's a sort of dichotomy with the films that come out in December and January and the films that are released the rest of the year. And um, I am including this one because I thought it was a masterpiece. Manchester by the Sea is my number four film of the year. It didn't come out in this country until January and I didn't review it until January. I thought it was fantastic. I thought La La Land and Moonlight robbed it of Oscars. Um, it's uh, basically Casey Affleck, who's a nomark who um, lives in the city in a very sort of lonely existence, no money. And he finds out his brother's died. He's not very old. But he goes back to this Manchester by the Sea, a small town which he's left. And we gradually come to realise why he's in the existence he did and why he's very worried to be back there uh, some terrible terrible things happened in his past and he's never got over them and he returns to uh, where he's forced to look after the teenage son of his dead brother and it's um it's a kenneth lonergan is lonergan is an amazing writer and the writing on it is stunning um, I think he handles the individual scenes and the uh, communication between characters on a humanistic level way beyond m many of the writers operating today. It's a bleak film. It's a, it's a really sad film. Even more than being depressing, it's very, very sad. And the characters, particularly his ex-wife, Michelle Williams, I wish she was in this film twice as much. I love Michelle Williams. And she seems to have disappeared a little. But the scenes between them are just heartbreaking. Uh, everyone is excellent in it. Lucas Hedges plays the teen really, really well. Casey Affleck walked away deservedly with an Oscar for a heart-rending performance. And as the movie progresses, we're sort of thrown these tidbits that sort of build up. And then eventually you find out what happened and it's much worse than you could ever have imagined. It's shot lovely. It's really nice. This small town, snow, and very sort of bleak and windswept but beautiful at the same time. And it's just a film, a humanistic film about extreme circumstances when very extreme things happen to families, how they deal with them, how they relate to each other. 
couldn't have done any better with the material, I don't think. And um, Affleck as well, I thought was great in Gone Baby Gone when he first sort of broke through on the scene. And he's had an up and down time since. Some of the films he's been in haven't been as good. Um, but I think he's, he's at his best here and shows himself to be an actor of great potential. And uh, great to see Michelle Williams back as well. It's a really, really moving film. Um, very moving. I, f- I found myself, you know, borderline tears. Not not because it was like Bambi dying or something like that, but just because you could feel the, the, the life beneath these people, the, the pain that was driving their lives. So Manchester by the Sea is my number four film of the year. The remaining three are more recent, and the number one is hugely controversial. My number three film of the year, you're with Julian on the brown note, on Radio Northern Beaches. Uh, Korea has been one of the epicenters of Southeast Asian movies for about 15, 20 years now, produced some amazing stuff and some amazing directors. Boon Joon-ho drops one place. I think I had his last film, Snowpiercer, brilliant dystopian film set on a train in the future. I think that was my second favourite film of the year it came out, maybe about four years ago. Great film. He came back with a new paradigm in movie making, uh, Okja, which was made by Netflix and shown on Netflix, but also released in the cinema, which I think was the first time it's happened. And we're seeing this delineation between TV and movies, which is going to reach ahead very soon on this show. Um, We're seeing things changing a lot. Um, I don't know how much money it made at the cinema, but it's a big budget film for a Korean film. Um, basically, it's Tilda Swinton takes over as CEO of, a, of an agricultural company, a conglomerate. And they came up with a way of genetically engineering these super pigs. And I mean super pigs. They're taller than you and they weigh, you know, five tons. And they basically send 20 of them around the world to grow over many years. And then they sort of go around the world and see which one's been looked after the best and grown the best. And they have this big ceremony back in America where they're going to award this person that's looked after this pig. And the, who's the, uh, Ahn Seo Hyun, who is in an idyllic mountain sort of farmland in South Korea, she wins. She's lived there her whole life with her granddad. She's got no parents and she just dotes on this pig, which is several hundred times her body weight by now. And Tilda Swinton's people turn up and basically they're interrupted by animal rights people led by Jake Gyllenhaal, who want to stop this sort of industrial farming and say that they've got all this information that it's barbaric and they sort of steal the pig. And then they all sort of come together and formulate this plan where they're going to send the little girl to America with the pig and use it as a way of um, capturing what's going on. And it, it progresses along these lines, and it's basically about the horrors of industrial farming um, and the, way, the treatment of animals and also the, the way that multinational corporations um, operate. It's very resonant. It's very sort of of our times. Um, it's very sort of environmental and political and social and everything. Really, really good film. Um, the acting from Tilda Swinton, she was in Snowpiercer. She's not quite as good this time around, but she's still very good. I think she plays two roles in this. Paul Dano shows up. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's all right, but I found the, it was a bit destabilizing, the whole animal rights side of it, because they sort of popped in and out like Brazil. Um, but still, it's beautiful to look at and sometimes horrible to look at. Uh, there was some pretty sad and heartbreaking stuff towards the end as well, quite confrontingly so. 
Yeah, some of the farming looked more like Auschwitz. It was pretty confronting. Um, but it's a great film, shows tons of imagination. A very different film to Snowpiercer, his last film. Um, and the little girl in the centre of it all and the pig are both magnificent. Uh, and I just thought it was a hugely original film. So that's my number three film of the year. You can catch it on Netflix, uh, Okja. And uh, another great one from Boon Joon Hu. Top 10 films of the year. You're with Julian on the brown note. And at number 10, it was Lost City of Zed. Wonder Woman at 9. John Wick 2 at 8. L from last year, really. A French film, 7. Dunkirk, the war movie at 6. Mother, an astonishing Darren Aronofsky film starring Jennifer Lawrence, which I've just seen and will be thinking about for weeks at number 5. Uh, Manchester by the Sea was uh, from all the way back in January, starring that amazing performance by Casey Affleck. Okja, the film about the giant pig at three. At number two, everyone's favourite film of the year, nearly, um, Get Out, which was a phenomenon on release earlier in the year. Uh, Daniel Kaluuya stars as a guy who is an African-American and has a white girlfriend who decides to casually drop that they're going to visit their parents, her white parents in the south. Uh, he's a little bit worried. He has cause to be. <laughs> um, it's an astonishing film directed by Jordan Peele. Made a fortune. Cost $4 million, Made $260 million at the box office. And quite why it, it took off so well. Probably because of the race elements in it, given that we're in a world of Black Lives Matter and so on. Uh, it pointedly poked its finger and wiggled it about in, and it did so with a great deal of humour and horror. Um, it's kind of like a black comedy and a social horror film. So not sort of a horror film with a monster, but just what's happening to this guy. It's very relatable to Mother. His character, even though it's a comedy it, at times, uh, it, it's relatable to the Jennifer Lawrence character, which is somebody who goes into a scenario where they go to a particular place or they're in this house and his partner's supposed to be on his side but she seems to be siding with all these people and he doesn't know what's going on. And they keep making these odd remarks that are a little bit racist but he's not quite sure. And the whole thing builds. There's elements of the Stepford Wives, you know, these secret societies as well. There's a film called Society from the 90s which is shocking. Uh, and that follows a similar path as well, where you've got this white picket fence community. It's obviously a lot darker than they're letting on. Um, and again, Wicker Man as well comes up with the idea of a central protagonist that sort of occupies the same space in the movie as you do. And you don't really know what's going on. Were they racist just then? I'm not quite sure. Uh, and it all builds to, uh, again, quite an apocalyptic denouement as well. Um, it's a fantastic film and very enjoyable, fresh, exciting, very much of the times and uh, win a lot of applaudits as well. So well done to Jordan Peele for that. I think they um, apparently they bottled the ending, which was going to have the, uh, a more of a Black Lives Matter ending. But it's still a great film and topped a lot of lists this year. So that's my number two film of the year, Get Out. And next is going to be my controversial number one, my number one film, Film of 2017 is Twin Peaks. Now, I would start by saying I'm not the only one. Online there's a, 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 a website like Rotten Tomatoes almost called Metacritic and that lists 
Basically, it gets every publication from around the world and creates sort of like which film got the most points as uh, being the best film and so on and TV show and albums across a range of publications. Well, Twin Peaks is the second highest ranked TV show, but it's the 10th highest ranked movie. At least two mu uh, movie magazines have put Twin Peaks as their number one film of the year. Sight and Sound, probably the most old and prominent British movie review magazine for, from the last 50 years, um, put it as its second best film of the year. Ironically, it lost to Get Out. Why is it a film? This has been occupying a lot of people's time lately. And that's par for the course because I can't think of another show in recent history that has occupied more people's time <laughs> trying to work out what was going on, what was meant, why is it a film. For me, Okja, I, I put it number three. That is a film made for TV. The fact that it's on TV is irrelevant. I mean, they could have not released Okja in the cinema and it's still a film. If they cut it in half and showed it on two separate nights, is it is it not a film? It's still a film. There are a number of differences between Twin Peaks and a normal TV show. A lot of TV shows, say the most basic ones, would be the sitcom and the serial that are syndicated. So like, say Seinfeld or Law & Order. Everything stays the same in every episode so that they can show them in any order. That's one thing. Obviously it isn't that. Then there are the more long-form shows like Breaking Bad that have a linear storyline. And this does have a linear storyline. But... There are still familiar elements that are used all the way through. For instance, you know, Water White's family and house are in every episode virtually of the whole five series. Plus there were different series where things moved on to a new realm. This was one 18-hour block with no nothing after it at all, no possibility of a follow-up. And it followed each episode on from the end of the previous one. And Lynch himself said that this is an 18-hour movie. It's a new kind of movie. It's a new paradigm for movie. It had to be on TV. You could not watch it in cinema. And it wouldn't work because it was also a new movie where you needed to watch it in hour chunks and have a gap. As I mentioned when I reviewed it and gave it a hugely rare 10 out of 10, if you didn't have that week in between the episodes, it wouldn't work because you needed to conjugate what was going on and, and familiarise yourself with what was at, what what have I just seen for the last hour? There are whole online communities getting each other up to speed as to what the symbolism meant, what this scene meant. It it moved. It wasn't just linear and then going back to Walter White's house and Walter White's family or or a lot of uh, familiar tropes and signifiers that appeared throughout all of the series. It moved on and left the past behind frequently. Some characters did indeed appear in a lot of episodes, but they were the main protagonists. Um, a lot of the, the scenes and the locations and the areas and the styles even moved continually. It was shot at the pace of a movie. It had no truck with, you know, going from scene to scene rapidly. It was often excruciatingly slow, shot like a movie. Um, it was more challenging than TV is allowed to be. Uh, this, the very, very famous episode 8 had a 40-minute sequence that was pure art house with no characters, no dialogue, just insane music and visuals denoting the first atomic bomb blast and the creation of evil in the universe. This kind of thing has never been attempted on TV and rarely in cinema, but it is an art house film that needed to be broken up into 18 chunks. And it's a new way of looking at cinema for me. 
you could put it together as an 18-hour film and, and kill yourself trying to watch it. But it needed that medium to, to get by. It is so not a traditional TV show. The original two series of Twin Peaks, they had frequently repeated locations. Each episode would tie itself up to a degree. They didn't do that here. Each episode just sort of ended and then it went on to a new... Sometimes there were very satisfying ends to episodes. But for the most part, it didn't bother itself with such concerns. It just existed for those 18 hours. And for me, it's probably been... It's, I said it was the most exciting TV series since uh, Breaking Bad in many ways. But that is a TV series, whereas this has a lot of elements to it that don't really conform to any notion of TV. They do kind of conform to our notion of films, just a very, very long film. Um, it was possibly David Lynch's masterpiece, and it redefined, I think, t to a lot of people what he meant for cinema. Everything about it was so well done. The Golden Globes haven't even picked it as best miniseries. Um, the acting, I mean, I've just taken a few of the hundred or so people. Dana Ashbrook as Bobby Briggs was rubbish in the first two. He's brilliant here and has a scene in a, a diner which is one of the most stunning and unforgettable sequences in both film and TV. Um, the log lady, Catherine Coulson, she has a death scene in this a week or so before she died in real life where she talks about dying, and it's jaw-dropping. Uh, Sherilyn Fenn, who was the original Laura Palmer, who was killed at the first, in the first Twin Peaks, um, she appears and is brilliant in a multiple different ways. The, the sheriff, Robert Forster, is a great actor anyway. He's awesome. Uh, Grace Zabriskie as Sarah Palmer, her mother, is stunning. David Lynch is hilarious. He's a great actor in this, and he, whole, he sort of helms the whole thing together. Laura Dern may well get some award nods for her performance, as should Naomi Watts, who's excellent. Uh, and Robert Bronski as a woodman is one of the scariest things I've ever seen on TV. He is really chilling. But it's Carl McLaughlin who plays multiple characters in this film, very, very different ones throughout. And he doesn't just play the three that he's sort of... Um, he plays evil Agent Cooper, who's sort of like a possessed version of Agent Cooper, the good Agent Cooper, and Dougie Jones, who's mute throughout, virtually in a coma throughout his whole film. And a lot of people were angered by his continual lack of speech and how often he was in it. But there's also lots of other things that happen to the characters that make them into different people. It's cerebral and it's challenging and it's daring. It's stunningly directed. The music's incredible. Um, if it did have some sort of signifying trope, it was that the fact that the, a lot of the times the episodes would end in the Roadhouse bar and they'd have bands like Chromatics and so on. Eddie Vedder uh, made up an appearance and so on. And they were on stage. Um, and that, that was one of the continual elements, but it wasn't always there, and it didn't always happen at the end of the episode. But I thought Twin Peaks was a landmark for both TV and film, and I think it deserves to be thought of as a film. It's one contiguous 18-hour story that needs breathing because it's just too long for us to take on something so strong, and also because it's got so much that happens that we need to think about and settle before we move on to the next stage. So I have no qualms at all about saying that Twin Peaks is my favourite film of the year. I don't care that it's on TV. We've already discussed that that's not important. It's broken up into episodes. It's not a series, though. It's not, it's not sort of 
you don't get nice tidy episodes you get a, a, an endless flow throughout the whole thing um and it should win a slew of awards shocked by the golden globes to be honest that it didn't give anything so i'm going to give twin peaks my film of 2017 and i'm not the only one and there's this massive online firestorm now is it a film is it a tv show it's both but for me it's more a film a very very long one so it's brilliant brilliant twin peaks the event of the year on film or tv for me and that will be the end of things for uh, next week i'm going to do my roundup of my top 20 25 tracks of the year of which i'm not that sure about at all and that'll be my last